Okay, we're in uh, Mark chapter 11. A couple of interesting things happen here. Uh, and, and let me just say this in the introduction as, before we get into it. Uh, Mark, in his gospel, is a great storyteller. He can spin a yarn, weave a story. And by that, I mean one story weaves into another one, in and out. Uh, we, as you remember, last week, uh, the message that Pastor Adam shared, that story that amazed people, that was an example of that two stories weaving in and out. Um, and what we're going to look at this morning is another example of two stories weaving in and out. Because Jesus comes to Jerusalem, he goes to the temple, and then he leaves the temple, and he goes out and he curses a fig tree. And the next day, he goes back into the temple again and cleans it, which is the story we're going to read about. And then he goes back out the next day, and the disciples are surprised because the fig tree's dead already in one day. So you see two stories being interwoven, working together here. Uh, and uh, what we saw last week was another example of Jairus. Jairus came to him, to Jesus, and said, my, my daughter is sick, she's going to die, can you come to my house? So he started to go to her house, and then this woman with an issue of blood comes up behind him, touches the hem of his garment, she gets healed, and then Jesus goes back out and goes to Jairus' daughter. Stories weaving in and out. Mark, that's a characteristic of Mark in the way that he writes. So we're looking at, at this occasion right here, and uh, we're going to start in verse 11, Mark 11, 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now we jump down to verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of, the, of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The chief priests and teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill Jesus. But they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. The whole crowd was amazed. This is, where, this is why we're putting this story uh, in this series. So the first thing I want us to see, if you want to write this down on your blank, is Jesus overviewing the temple. That's in verse 11. He went to the temple and he looked round about. He just kind of assessed the situation. Kind of like you did the first time you came to New Hope. You came in, you found a seat, and you began to look around looked at things on the, on the platform, you looked up at the ceiling, you looked at the lights up there, and you kind of assessed everything. You looked around, see who was here. Am I on the right side of the church or the wrong side? And we just kind of made that assessment as we looked around. And by the way, I don't suggest you do that because you can't see nothing but this bright light in your eyes after you do that. I want us to observe this, though, before we move on. The first thing Jesus did when he got to Jerusalem was he went to the temple. The temple was the place of worship. The temple was a place where people went to connect with God. And so he went to the temple, 
First thing, it was late in the day. Once he assessed everything, he went back out to, to Bethany, which is about two miles away, a little, little town, where there was a, a family that put him up. And he went to that house, and that's where he spent the night making a whip. You see, Jesus didn't pop off with his emotions. He saw what was happening. It ticked him off. But he did the Christian thing, kept his cool, walked out, went over to Bethany, spent all night thinking about what he's going to do with it, made a whip in the process, and the next day took his whip back to the temple. See, he's going to clean house. He's going to clean house. You and I need to be able to see problems Keep our cool, go back home with it, think about our best strategy, maybe make a whip, at least put together a plan, and the next day we put it into play. We don't pop off emotionally because we see something we don't like. So the first thing I want us to see is the first thing Jesus did when he got to Jerusalem, and the incident that happened just prior to this story, verses, verse 10 and on back, was the triumphal entry. Jesus had just come to Jerusalem. People were out there uh, uh, saying, Long live the king, Hosanna in the highest, welcoming, welcoming, welcoming him to Jerusalem. First thing he did, first thing, was go to the temple. And then the next day, first thing he did, was go back to the temple. He didn't say, I don't like that church. That church is full of corruption. That church is doing bad things. I'm going to get out of there. No, he went home. He thought of strategy. Okay, how can I fix it? What can I do to change things? And he went back in to fix it. I wish God would put something in me I could do to help fix the church. I hope that God puts something in your heart. He helps you see something other people don't see so that you can implement it and you can fix it and make the church what God wants it to be. We all need to be act, not just active spectators, but active participants in making the church what he wants it to be. Here's the second part of the story I want us to see, if you want to write this down in your outline, overturning the tables. They had these tables set up, and they had these benches where people uh, that were selling these uh, sacrifices, these offerings. They were selling doves to be used to offering. They were, they were selling animals, and they had turned the temple into a marketplace. It turned it into a Walmart. And Jesus saw that, and he thought, that's not the purpose of this place. The purpose of this place is to be a house of prayer for all nations. That's the purpose. And I think all of us and all of our ancestors down through church history had a tendency to fall into some kind of a tradition because it was convenient or because it made more sense but had nothing to do with a house of prayer, nothing to do with a place of good news. Buying and selling, what's that got to do with heaven? Absolutely nothing. That has everything to do with this world. I mean, isn't that why you go to work every day? Buying and selling. The world that we live in is a buying and selling place. But when we get to heaven, everything's going to be paid for. It has nothing to do with heaven. That's all down here on this earth. And so what these people had done is they had turned the house of prayer, a spiritual place, into a worldly place. 
And then it uses that phrase, as he taught them. What did he teach? He went through the house doing things. He cleaned the house. He threw tables upside down. That's how he taught. He threw benches upside down. He let the doves out. They flew away. Pretty tough to get doves back in the cage once they fly away. He intended this to be a permanent release. He's clean in the temple. He taught them by his example. And I wish parents could grab a hold of this. I wish I had a better grasp of this when I was parenting a couple kids. That I teach best by my example, by what I do, by what my kids see me do. That's a much better teacher than me telling them what they ought to do while I don't do it. They're going to follow my example, not my words. And it's a, good, it's a good lesson for Christians, too. We should be modeling what we say we believe, not just, not just come to church so we can declare it while we're singing songs together, but to actually live it in the workplace, out the, outside of this building. So he turned things upside down. He did that all through his life, didn't he? Turned things upside down. He didn't come in to smooth things out. He came in to demolish, to tear things up, because he wants to start over with a godly perspective in all of our lives. So he, he threw those tables, money went flying everywhere. Now, I wanted to get an image of what that was like, so I thought we'd go back to some of the, uh, some of the masters, the art masters down through history that that have tried to portray and paint pictures of, of uh, this cleansing of the temple. But I got real discouraged trying to find a picture because they all showed Jesus with his whip hurting people. And I'm thinking, from the story we just read, it doesn't say anything about him hurting people. He came in there to change the way they did things, not to hurt people. He didn't come to be the judge. God is the judge. He came to be the redeemer. The rescuer to set people free, give people a second chance, a new beginning. And it's not just the house he cleansed. The story's all about, really, if we read it carefully, it's all about Jesus cleansing our house. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and he comes to clean house, to clean up our lives. So that we can be a living example of Jesus in this life. Heard the story of a couple college boys that went to the dean, asked permission to bring the team mascot into the dorm for the winter, which was a goat. And the dean looked at the boys and said, What about the smell? And the boy said, He'll get used to it. Sometimes we generate a lot of stink and we don't even realize we're generating it. But the goat would recognize it. He's trying to clean our lives up. Here's the third thing I want us to see. The over, overwhelming the people. Jesus overwhelmed them. Nobody had ever had the guts to do something like that. Nobody had the gall, nobody had the courage to go into the temple and confront 
the leaders of the system of the whole religion. Nobody had ever done that before. And Jesus is confronting the very root and fabric of how they connect with God. Turning everything upside down. He says, my house is going to be called, it's going to be known for, it's going to be recognized as a house of prayer. Prayer is going to be the hub. Notice how he's promoting prayer. Prayer is your communication with God. It's your heart talking to God. And then shutting up and being quiet and listen to God talk back as he instills his word within us. But he says, you've made it a den of robbers. Robbers. You know what robbery is? There's a difference between robbery and thievery. A thief is someone who sneaks up on you, and when you're not checking, when you're not aware, he takes something that belongs to you and runs off with it. That's a thief. A robber beats you up to take it away. A robber uses violence. Look it up in the dictionary. A robber uses violence to steal from you. It's the same Greek word where he says you made it a den of robbers. That word translated robbers is the very same Greek word used for that story about the man on the Jericho Road that got beat up by a bunch of robbers and left him in the ditch to die, stole everything from him. It was robbers, not a thief. It was a robber. And a good Samaritan came along and rescued him, brought him back to health. Satan is a robber, but he's also a thief. But Jesus just said that you turned this place, instead of a house of prayer for all nations, you've turned this place into a den. You know what a den is? That's the hiding place, the hideout. Into a den of thieves. Robbers, thieves in the King James, robbers in the NIV, which is a better translation. Jesus really, and that's all the wording we have of anything he said, but he's really referring to two Old Testament prophecies that were referring to what was going to happen in the future. The first one is Isaiah 56, verses 6 through 7, which says this, And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Notice he's talking about foreigners. Coming, coming to Christ. He's talking about foreigners. It's going to be a house of prayer for all nations, all peoples, not just us New Hopians, but all people. We're supposed to be expanding. We're supposed to be reaching out. We're supposed to be bringing people in and accepting them when they come, no matter how much garbage they got on them when they come in the door. We're supposed to be welcoming them because it's supposed to be, people are supposed to be talking about us as a house of prayer for all nations, all peoples. The second scripture he's referring to is found in uh, Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 9, 10, and 11. 
He says, will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say we are safe? Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. So what did Jesus do when he got to the temple? He watched. He looked around. He assessed the situation. He got mad and went back out and plotted his, re- his response. He came in the next day with a whip, cracking a whip. I don't see him hurting anybody, but it's kind of intimidating when you're trying to stop somebody from doing what you want and they crack a whip at you. Because you don't want to get stung, right? So the people, the leaders, the religious leaders feared him. They were afraid. So they didn't take any action. So this story tells me, and I'm I'm kind of wrapping up the preaching part because I got my own story to weave. Uh, It's all about Jesus turning things upside down. He comes into this world to turn things upside down. There's a good possibility, knowing the kind of people I'm talking to this morning, people like me, there's a good possibility that there's some things being turned upside down in your world right now. And you don't like it. And it makes you insecure. And it brings you pain. But this is how Jesus works. He steps into a situation, he assesses it, turns things upside down, and begins to rebuild. The history of this church is all about change. Did you know that? History of this church is all about change. People don't like change, never have, never will. I'm a model of conservatism. I like my life to stay steady. I, I, I know where my chair and my lamp are in my living room, and I don't like it when my wife says, we've got to put up the Christmas tree and move this chair. I don't like it. I'm a creature of habit. I like things the way I like things. I'm a, anybody else like me? But God doesn't like things that don't change. I've learned that over my lifetime. He keeps changing things. Why can't you just leave it alone, Lord? We found the perfect thing. Jesus said, well, I looked at it, and it wasn't so perfect, so we got to change some things. When I first came to Christ, I'm telling the story now. When I first came to Christ, I was kind of mad at my home church because my experience coming to Christ was kind of a Uh, Paul on the Damascus Road kind of experience. God knocked me flat and uh, took away everything that I considered important to me, challenged all my values, and it happened all real quick, real rapid. It was like like a slap in the face kind of thing. And I realized in that encounter that God was real and that God recognized me and God wanted to speak to me and God cared about me. 
and I was un, totally unworthy. And when I recognized that, it was like God began a new rebuilding in my life. But I was very frustrated with the church I was raised in because they never told me about that. They never told me there was a God who really cared. Maybe they told me, but I didn't hear it. They never told me there was such a thing as the Holy Spirit that could indwell me and empower me and change my life. They never told me that. And I was kind of really frustrated. And I thought to myself, I'm... I am going to throw all this tradition, everything I've learned, everything I've heard about what church and God is supposed to be, I'm going to put it all on the back burner, and I'm going to get into the Word, and I'm going to study the Word, and I'm going to see what does the Bible say Christianity is. And I, and I, I began to, to take anything that even looked like tradition and question it. Now, that doesn't mean that when, when we began this church I didn't have any tradition. I mean, there's still a few people around who can remember me every Sunday. I preached in a suit, white shirt, and tie. As my son once said, I was squeaky clean. And he said, my generation won't trust you. You dress like that, young generation won't trust you. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, Is my attire, is my dress turning away the Word of God? And I began immediately to change how I dressed up here because I want you to see me just like you, not something way above you. I'm just like you. I'm a sinner saved by grace, but gloriously saved. And I can't go back to where I was. i got to move on. So my, my perspective of ministry from the very beginning was to shake off tradition and do things God's way, the way he wanted us to do it. One of the first things we did under my influence in the church was we bought a school bus, a, school, a bus that the school had retired. They didn't want to drive that old thing anymore. So we bought it from the school system, painted it, Drove it up and down the streets of Waterloo, picking up boys and girls and bringing them into Sunday school in the church. And let me tell you, people didn't like that because we were bringing totally unchurched kids in here. And they came in dirty, filthy. I mean, faces, filthy. I remember, I don't know who it was. I think it probably was maybe Gail Brown back there. But it was was some of the mothers began taking these kids when they'd get off the bus on Sunday morning, taking them into the bathrooms, restrooms, and washing their faces, getting them presentable for church. I remember some people did not like that because some of the kids came in, you know, their parents did not discipline them. Their parents didn't teach them how to use the king's English. And they they came in with some profanity. We had to deal with it. But hey, this is what the church is supposed to be. We went out and we picked up the, what's the word? What's that, what's that word that Hillary Clinton used for the followers of Trump? What was that word? What was it? Deplorables. We picked up deplorables and brought them in. Cleaned them up. Few of those are still coming to church today. 
The others, maybe they're going somewhere else. Another thing we did, as if you remember, this was mentioned a couple weeks ago, this church, its origin was a non-instrumental church of Christ. In other words, it was a church where people did not believe in musical instruments. Everybody sang a cappella. There's nothing wrong with a cappella singing. Unless you can't sing worth a lick. And I began thinking, the purpose of the church is to reach people outside. What kind of music are they going to respond to? How many people listen to a cappella music on the radio on their way to work? We've got to communicate with their language, not our language, if we want to reach them. So I remember we had this proposal to bring a musical instrument into the church. Oh, my goodness. Those people were indoctrinated. I mean, they had this philosophy that it was okay to have a piano in your house, but you could not have a piano in the Lord's house. I don't get it. That didn't make sense to me. I couldn't find anything in the Bible about it. But we had this discussion. We had people come in that wanted to discuss it. Oh, it was an evening, and I remember people got mad, and I remember this one particular family stormed up and walked out the door. Well, when you walk out the door, you lose your voice. We got a piano. We started playing that piano. I remember the first, the first week I was the pastor. I got up to lead the singing. We sang a cappella, except for one song. It's because that was the only song my wife knew how to play on the piano. <laughs> she had worked all week long on that hymn, and we sang that hymn with a piano. And the next week, we sang two hymns, because she worked on another one the next week. And we began to grow with that piano, and then we added an organ. And Oh, when we added the drums... People saw that as a real problem. But we couldn't stay where we were, you see, because Jesus keeps turning tables upside down. By the way, when we got that first piano, it was donated. We did not use people's offering money to buy that piano. It was a donated piano. Because people will give towards something that they believe in, and even if they see there's some resistance there. Then we began adding choruses to the hymns, which gave us some variety because hymns, you know, everything in that hymn book was like 200 years old, and people were writing Christian songs that were not in the book. So we began adding some choruses, and we would have people sing choruses that were modern, that were uh, uh, freshly written. People didn't like that. It's not in the book. I remember people protesting. We'd sing a chorus, simple chorus. I mean, anybody could learn this chorus. A kid could learn this chorus. As a matter of fact, there were some kid songs we were doing back then. This little light of mine. All the adults, hold your finger up. That's your light. This little light of mine. Everybody sang it. There were a couple people, protesters. They would not sing it. If it's a hymn book, they'd sing it. There's a chorus, would not sing it, protest, but you know something? We kept singing choruses, 
And we kept seeing people come in that liked the choruses. I'd rather see one family leave than to have two not come. I want to get the ones that God's pulling in. So now we're doing choruses. People didn't know the words. We thought, well, if we put the words up there for everybody to see. So we got an overhead projector. Remember those old overhead projectors? You make a transparency, you lay it on the screen, it projects up on the wall, and, and everybody in our little church building could, could see the words, and we, we had choruses to sing. The protesters still protested, by the way. That didn't change anything. Then we got in this building, and the overhead projector that was changing things, we put that thing right down here in the front, and you couldn't read the words. It was, it was like pathetic. We hadn't thought about that. So we moved it up here on the platform. Some of you remember, remember that? We put this overhead projector up here on the platform, and somebody flipping transparencies while we're doing it up here. It didn't look too cool. But we decided we hadn't thought about that, but now we're in this building. We have to do something. What we need to do is we need to get an over, a, a video projector. That's what we need to do. And I remember proposing that to the directors. That first, it, it was, was like the first month we were in the building. We hadn't made our first mortgage payment yet. And I'm proposing we buy a $7,000 video projector system. And I'm trying to sell this to the board of directors. And I, I could see they're, they're not buying this. They, they don't see what I can see. But one of those elders came to me after the meeting, and he said, Pastor, I believe that if God's spoken to you that we need to have a video projector, uh, I will buy that. Give me two months. Give me two months to come up with the money. And two months later, he came up with $7,000, and we, we bought the, the video projector, which was much larger than this one at that time and a video screen, and we began projecting things. To my knowledge, we are the first church in DeKalb County to have a video projector and screen. Nobody else could see it. It wasn't a part of their tradition. We were changing our tradition. Can you even imagine having worship here now without that? I mean, how many of us have those songs memorized? I need the words in front of me some way. And speaking of the new building, I remember we had to take out a mortgage to build this building. We had a lot of faith people in our church at that time that were very much opposed to borrowing money, pay, pay cash for everything. It would have taken us 100 years at the rate we were going to set back enough money to pay for this building. But we went to the bank we took out a mortgage based on pledges. You know what a pledge is? It's a faith promise people make. Bank, banks don't like promises. They like signatures. They want some kind of commitment. And I had to go in and meet with those with Maury Winkler and those big shots of people, and, and I had to convince them that our church was believable. They wanted to know, why do you, you say you have this many people coming, but you only have this many members. Why is that? And I had to explain to them. I said, in a lot of churches, the membership is even much larger than their actual attendance. But in our church, 
we have a bunch of new Christians, brand new converts, and they don't know about church membership yet. They'll grow into it. And they, they trusted us. And I'll be, for, I'll be eternally grateful for People's Federal Savings Bank loaning us the money, giving us that mortgage. You know, that's a risky thing for a bank to do. What if the church splits and they can't make their payment and the bank has to foreclose to get their money back? Who is the bad guy there? It's the bank. So they don't like to loan money to churches, uh, but I'm thankful that they did. I think it was a God thing. But it offended people that we took out a mortgage. And then I remember this change, the parking lot, when we built this building. You see, we had our first service in here in December of 1996. December. It's not the best time to pave your parking lot. So we had a gravel parking lot all winter long. In the spring, when the weather broke, then we had the, the, brought the asphalt company in, and the asphalt put in those islands out there that you see today. Looks nice out there. But I'll tell you, when we had gravel, people parked all which ways and everybody liked it. When we put the asphalt parking in there, they didn't stripe it till the next week. And that first Sunday, with no lines on there, it was chaos in the parking lot. People didn't know which way to park. I kind of I got a big smile on my face looking out of my office window, people parking out there and wondering, what should I do? What should I do? Change throws disorients us, throws us off. And then I remember when See, I'm a King James Version guy. I went to Bible college on the King James Version. I love the King James Version Bible. There's a, there's a, a poeticness about it that, that just warms my heart. But I became aware as I preached that this young generation is not going to read the King James Bible. There's too many of these and thous in there. They're just not going to read it. So to communicate with them... I switched over to the New International Bible. I'm still a King James Version guy. I still do my personal devotions out of the King James Version Bible. When I go to the nursing home, I use the King James Version when I speak to those people. But I switched over to the NIV. Oh, we had some problems with that. There were King James Version people that just thought that was the holy book. And how can you move away from the holy book? moved away from it because I wanted to preach in the lives of people that would receive it. All these changes brought resistance. And then I remember when we made a decision to crank up the volume. Let the sound system work because we wanted to create energy in our worship we wanted excitement, so we make people stand up when we sing. Because people would fall asleep if we sat down. Now, if you have a healthy shoe, and you have a problem standing, and you want to sit down, uh, I'm, all, I'm okay with that. But you know, when we worship here, I have to stir myself. I have to make myself get into it. I clap my hands, I raise my hands, I do a little dance up there. I want to worship God, I want to connect with God, and I want to do it right up front so everybody behind me sees as a leader, I am putting myself into it. Because if a visitor comes into our church and everybody has fallen asleep during the worship time, that's exactly what they're going to do. 
But if I'm excited about my conversion, if I'm excited about my redemption, if I'm excited about my walk with God, I ought to express it because I want it to rub off on other people. So we cranked up the volume to generate excitement. Oh, the people didn't like it. My generation, baby boomers, did not like that loud music. But you know, if we didn't do that, our kids wouldn't want to be here. What we do, we do for the next generation, not for ourselves. It's not about our comfort and our convenience. It's about their conversion. So we have to make changes. Oh, the most recent change. Uh, I don't know if you realized it, but the decor in this room, except for the chevrons up there, the decor in this room is a quarter of a century old. How many of you have a 25-year-old carpet in your house? That's how old carpet is you're standing on. We've had this thing cleaned so many times, the cleaners say, you don't want to clean this anymore. It's going to fall apart. So we decided it was time to do some change in, in the decor, in the decoration, in the way we do things. And we thought, if we're, if we're going to bring some freshness, we need to do this with the eye of the younger generation. So we did this change with the, the chevrons on the front pointing up toward God. And in the process of doing that, and by the way, this is, this is temporary. We cannot leave anything like this permanent. If Jesus is turning tables upside down, he's going to do it for us too. So as we were looking at this, we thought, you know, what stands in the way of this decor is that we had a big wooden cross. It used to be in the opening right here until we got this screen, and then that didn't look very good, covering up the cross. So, we, so it was my idea to put the cross up there, and then we, we put it on base here so it would stand up front. You saw me refer to that thing again and again because the cross is what changes our lives. And we decided for this to work, we really need to relocate that cross. We need to do something else with it. Oh, you'd have thought I shot the sacred cow. It was my idea to put the cross up there. I thought it would be okay, my idea, to bring some freshness, to do something new. We're not rejecting the cross. It has nothing to do with saying the cross isn't important. We just decided that the way we're going to communicate the cross is on the screen. That's where a young generation puts their focus on the screen. So we're going to put the cross up there. It's just a change. We haven't changed our foundation. And people resist change. I resist change. I don't like change. But I not only have to have change happen to me, it's my responsibility as a pastor to bring change in the whole body of Christ. I remember when I was, when I was in the, uh, training for the ministry. I was, it was at Calvary Temple in Fort Wayne. And Pastor Pano, if you, everybody know him, Pastor Pano would just make changes, almost random changes. Your classroom is moving over there, and this classroom is moving over there. Routine changes. And I, and I thought to myself... He's like a control freak. He doesn't check with teachers. He just moves things around. And then I realized, as I was a pastor over time myself, I realized 
people settle into a routine and there's no life in it anymore unless you keep changing things. So we as a church are a bunch of people that have God keep changing things in us, doesn't he? Why didn't he just leave me alone? No, he wants life in me, so he keeps changing things. And he keeps changing our church. He keeps changing our community. He keeps changing our economy. Things don't ever stay the same. They keep changing. But I need to hang on to God because he never changes. In the midst of everything around me changing, he never changes. Let's stand. Let's not get away from the message I'm illustrating here. I'm applying. Jesus turns tables upside down when he sees they're not productive. When he sees the fig tree not producing, he turns it upside down. When he sees a church not producing, he shakes things up. I don't like it. You don't like it. It's the way God works. So I want to close with this. There's a real good chance there's some shaking going on in your life, in your personal situation. There's some shaking, some, some things being, the boat being rocked. You don't like it a bit, but it's because God wants us to hang on to him, and it's when we shake things that things break free. If we, we just sang about breakthrough. We just sang about God doing great and mighty things. How does he do it? By shaking things up. If you can hang on while he's shaking things up and not fall overboard, if you can hang on while he's shaking things, you're going to see God do great things when he comes through to the other side. So hang on to him as you go through your crisis. Heavenly Father, I pray right now for my brothers and sisters, people just like me, going through changes, changes we don't necessarily like, but changes that bring new opportunity, fresh beginning. Open the doors of possibility for us, God. Help us to see what you can see. Help us to see the future like you see the future. And help us to hang on to you through it all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.